For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Governor Stitt is calling for an investigation of Tulsa Public Schools. Stitt asked the state auditor for the investigation after prompts from two TPS board members. School Superintendent Deborah Gist calls the request unfortunate and political theater. Neva, what are your thoughts on this investigation request? Well, you have to certainly uh, wonder about the timing. I mean, first mm-hmm. of all, the governor uh, announced this on social media, Facebook and Twitter, one afternoon that he had requested the audit. But the really, the Tulsa Public Schools are already proactively engaged in finding out exactly what the issues are, uh, the discovery of almost $20,000 in irregularities uh, from one vendor contract in the, in the that was within the district's personnel office, the superintendent certainly has taken action. We've now seen that uh, uh, that there was the uh, uh, resignation of the head of personnel for TPS. So there are a lot of things in motion. So kind of this add-on of the governor saying uh, to the uh, audit to the auditor and inspector, let's have an, an investigation of this. Seems like it's just um, it, it does it does beg the question that I think the superintendent raised is was this just uh, was this just political posturing and we have to remember that we have a uh, we have two things going on we have the the governor running for re-election against the state superintendent of public instruction as the Democrat nominee now Joy Hoffmeister versus Kevin Stitt in November and we have a runoff uh, with the uh, superintendent's race. Uh, between uh, the governor's hand-picked cabinet member and and uh, secretary of education uh, Ryan Walters versus April Grace. So whether these things uh, factor totally into it or just give the perception that that gives outsiders pause as they look at what's going on, the bottom line is there's a process. They will go through it if there if there are irregularities, improprieties, uh, misuse of funds. I think things are in motion to correct those uh, once these audits take place. Ryan, well, this is straight out of the governor's political playbook. He uh, almost, it seems that he has to always have an opponent, an enemy, a political enemy uh, that he is campaigning against. Even whenever we're not in a campaign cycle, but right now, as, as Neva said, we're in the we're in the thick of a political uh, season, and so this really does. And it, as you know, Neva's already pointed out, the Tulsa Public Schools Superintendent Deborah Gist. They suspended the individual that was involved in this. Uh, that individual since resigned. They're looking into it. There doesn't, I mean, if, if there was impropriety, it seems like all of the steps that were necessary to get to the bottom of it have already been taken or are underway. Uh, uh, for her uh, part, Deborah Gist said that she welcomed the outside scrutiny, but then you question the motives of it. And I think that the motives seem pretty clear, especially when you see the governor. Uh, add in at the very end that he wanted to start digging into whether or not Tulsa Public Schools violated uh, House Bill 1775, which you know is is uh, popularly referred to as a ban on critical race theory, but doesn't even mention critical race theory and has a bunch of innocuous sayings in it that really I don't think have a lot of force in law. Um, and you know, I think if the governor needs to be careful by pushing this audit of 1775 violations, because ultimately I, I think that you're going to be really it's going to be really hard pressed to find. Uh, what a violation looks like under that. Um, the law is you know, so so broad and ambiguous, and it doesn't really seem to specify the type of conduct that the governor's talking about. 
And the, the activity in question here, the governor talks about indoctrination. We said, we don't want our kids indoctrinated. Well, I don't want my kids indoctrinated either. They were public schools. I don't want them indoctrinated. Uh, yeah, I want to be able to talk to my kids about history. And, you know, it, I'm the parent. I get to indoctrinate my kids, uh, you know, not the government. So I, I agree with that. But the idea that this indoctrination is really happening, it's just bogus. And the, the activity in question here didn't even involve students, uh, to my understanding. It was a, it was a professional training uh, with, uh, with staff at uh, Tulsa Public Schools. You know, students weren't there. I'm sure that it was probably, uh, that if there's anything that is questionable, it was probably a throwaway line. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this, this is you know, just kind of typical uh, from what we see from the governor's office is that you know, if, if, there is a, if there are other stories, because the other thing is that, you know, the real issue here in terms of misfunding of education dollars, 18 million in COVID relief dollars now under federal investigation uh, for allegations that they were misspent by the governor's handpicked candidate for superintendent of public instruction, uh, Ryan Walters, and the governor's team, mm-hmm. uh, all these other things that are unfolding. So uh, you, you throw this out there and you maybe hope to distract. And I think that, I think that was the point that super, the superintendent made. Right. I mean, it was kind of the volume back and forth of, uh, audits and, and, uh, allegations or, or raising questions. And she did raise the $18 million check that went to an out of state, uh, entity. And she pointed out that it had no bidding process and that it was already under review for, you know, what, what, at least at this point, are being viewed as certainly um, questionable uh, fun, questionable uh, actions with how the funds were spent. So, um, again, I think uh, the political volleyball back and forth may have been nothing but uh, a couple of days of uh, give and take in, in the headlines, but I'm not sure— um, I'm not sure it did anything to gain either side traction in terms of the political discourse. And really, at the bottom uh, bottom of all of this, there, again, is a process. Auditing is a process. Uh, you follow the money, you follow the numbers, you follow the information, and you determine an outcome based upon all of what that research and, and uh, detail brings forward. And I think that uh, everyone will be now interested to see uh, what the results are, and, and I think we will see them... Uh, uh, hopefully very quickly. Well, I don't know that we'll see him before the election. That's, I think that that's, uh, you know, what everybody, and that's really what this is really geared at is, is the November election. Um, the, the real end result of this is that Governor Stitt is going to have, uh, you know, this, this soundbite that he used in his video announcing the audit that he'll use on social media ads and on, you know, direct mail or maybe TV where, you know, Governor Stitt's standing up to critical race theory and indoctrination of children. And then I think on the flip side, Superintendent Hoffmeister is going to be able to have a campaign ad that says Governor Stitt's doing everything he can to distract from the numerous investigations and criminal allegations into his administration and, and appointed individuals in his administration. So that's that's the real result of this is that we've, we've now created two different campaign ads that allow uh, the governor stood to run on this record against critical race theory and allow Superintendent Hoffmeister to attack the governor uh, for trying to avoid the, the allegations against his administration. The Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation plans an inquiry of the commissioners of the land office. We spoke last week about how Director Elliott Chambers announced his resignation after allegations of self-dealing and misappropriation of taxpayer funds. Ryan, why is it important for the OSBI to get involved in this scandal? Well, because there's potential criminal allegations here. I think that when Superintendent Hoffmeister forwarded a letter to uh, 
Oklahoma County District Attorney David Prater, who has jurisdiction over uh, state agencies and, uh, and and offices in, in many in many instances, including this one. Um, you know, he he felt that these were credible allegations. He forwarded it to the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation and asked them to uh, to begin this investigation and said that he had a list of witnesses and exhibits that he would present to OSBI as soon as they were ready to receive them. Um, when we when we talked about this last week. Um, this this was really kind of an interesting deal because we saw like the the swell of the uh, the the allegations that the former director uh, that has since stepped down had a personal relationship. He was uh, apparently on 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 contract with the consulting firm that the state had hired that the commission had hired, and uh, whenever he stepped down, the governor, who's chair of the of the commission, said nothing about the the allegations. Thanked the individual for his service, and then later in the meeting. Whenever there was a vote as to whether or not to renew the contract with this uh, with this company in question, everyone voted for it, uh, including Governor Stitt, except for Superintendent Hoffmeister, and she was the lone no vote against renewing this contract. Um, you know that that I think sets up a, a really uh, volatile political issue that I think will move its way well into November, even if and and David Prater, uh, District Attorney David Prater, said that. It's unlike you know that that there that this is going to be uh, not sensational. We're not going to put it in the headlines. We're going to conduct this in, uh, investigation in a confidential manner, and we're not going to release it until we have results. Um, and so, w- will this come out before the election? I don't know. Uh, but you can you can bet that Superintendent Hoffmeister is going to make an issue of this moving into November. Neva, absolutely. I mean, once again, what what we're talking about is the head-to-head combat developing between the two gubernatorial candidates, uh, Kevin Stitt and Joy Hoffmeister. And uh, again, all of these things that are occurring on the watch of these individuals uh, is being brought right into the political, not fray, but forefront uh, to uh, engage in what is clearly the setup for the fall campaign. And I think uh, I think when we look at this, you take the political dimension out of it, and you look at exactly what you said, Ryan, a letter was sent to the district attorney. David Prater reviewed it and said that there was reason to move forward with with the possibility of this being a criminal investigation. OSBI confirmed it, and uh, now we have that process again, a process that will start and move forward. We know these processes oftentimes are very elongated. They take uh, uh, they take far more time than the public <laughs> likes to see. They want results and they want them to be thorough and and um, and unbiased and completely by the book. And yet everyone is anxious and wants to see these uh, quick results. And we won't see that uh, now. Will we see it before there's a changing of the guard after the November elections on all fronts with all of these individuals? Uh, that will that remains to be seen. An influential GOP political action committee is closing its doors after a settlement with the state ethics commission. The Republican senatorial committee is dissolving within the next 60 days after the agency found impermissible contributions dating back to 2015. The PAC will also pay back the state nearly $63,000. Neva, what is the Republican Senatorial Committee? Well, the Republican Senatorial Committee is a political action committee. There are literally dozens and dozens and dozens of PACs that are registered uh, with the Oklahoma Ethics Commission. They uh, have a process where they can conduct uh, they can conduct business uh, in, in election cycles. They can raise money. They can spend it in various fashions. In this instance, we're talking about what was I think really deemed the the flagship 
pack uh, among the Senate Republicans, a, a pack that had been in existence for two decades or more uh, and was used by uh, Republican Senate leadership to raise money and to advocate and, and help candidates, both uh, incumbents as well as those that uh, uh, were running for the first time that they that they wanted to help financially in these campaigns. So, um, but there are rules. And when it becomes clear that uh, the rules have been violated, that's where the Ethics Commission comes into play. Um, and that's where this process uh, took place, and they determined that corporate contributions and contributions that had been earmarked to go to a specific candidate had, in fact, uh, been improperly um, uh, placed in, in the senatorial uh, PAC, the Republican senatorial PAC. So uh, the result of all of this is the PAC's going away, and uh, the, there will be uh, monies that will now go into the uh, general uh, revenue fund that to uh, uh, to be spent, and and this pack goes away. A lot of other packs stay in place, and I think I think it's important to note that by and large we see a process uh, where individual campaigns and packs and independent expenditure committees, all of these various entities that legally can be involved in the political process, do it right. And so uh, this this does allow for a process to correct something that has not been done by the books. And I think this is what we what we see in this particular instance. I think um, with respect to the Republican Senate uh, members, I mean, probably I think we would expect that they will see some other avenue, whether it's a federal PAC or something else that legitimately gives them the opportunity going forward to raise money and to do the things that they've done in the past. Uh, I think those I think those uh, probably are options that will be on the table. Right. Well, Michael, you said closed doors. Uh, there's you know, with these packs, there's really not doors. There's not an there's not an office. I know you don't mean that literally, right. but just you know, for our listeners, I mean, it's not like the Republican senatorial pack had a, an office that was staffed all the time that you could walk into and say, "Here's a check," or "Let me talk to you about these issues." Um, there are, and as Neva said, there are rules. And when we look at packs, there are two different types of packs. There's limited packs, and there's unlimited packs. In a limited pack, you are, you know, by by its definition, limited in the types of corporate, the types of contributions that you can accept, meaning that you can't take money from corporations. Uh, you, you have to take money from individuals. Um, you know, there, there's limits to how much you can give. Uh, there's a $5,000 limit. Um, and they do that because the limited PACs can then make contributions directly to candidate campaigns. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, 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 otherwise, if you didn't have those rules there, uh, you would have a, uh, you know, just a, a bypass to the rules that prohibit candidates from accepting unlimited contributions or contributions of any amount from a corporation. So you have these limited PACs that take money in uh, the same way that candidate committees do, and then they can donate those to candidate committees. Um, There are other rules even with that. You can't earmark your money. Uh, You know, if I'm giving money to uh, the Republican senatorial PAC, I can't say I want it to go to Senator X. Uh, I wish we had a Senator X. That'd be great. Uh, but, you know, but, but, you know, my, my fictitious Senator X here, I can't say on my check, you know, give it to Senator X, which seems to be one of the things that happened here. You know, whether the contributor actually meant for it to be designated to a particular senator or not, you know, that's in question. Uh, whether the Senate uh, Republican senatorial PAC then used that money as a pass through to the candidate. Again, ways to try to keep people from bypassing the rules. Because if I'm, if I'm uh, an individual and I've given senator, a senator, uh, a candidate uh, for Senate, you know, $5,000, and then 
well, I want to give him another 5000 but I can't because I'm limited now. Well, I go to this pack and I say, here's $5,000, but give it to this individual. Well, that's a way to bypass the rules. Right. And so you can't do that. You can't earmark it. On an unlimited pack, which still exists, the Republican Senate uh, Caucus, I believe, still has an unlimited pack. You can accept money from corporations. I mean, there are very few restrictions there. I, I mean, you can't accept it from foreign entities, uh, I believe, but you can accept it from uh, you know any corporation in there uh, in in the United States in an unlimited amount. But you can't give directly to a candidate candidate campaign. You have to make that money. You have to spend that money uh, in what's called an independent expenditure, so that you're doing that. And you cannot coordinate with any candidate campaign and how you spend that money. Right. So those are the two different types of PACs. It was the limited PAC that, that had an issue here. My sense is that they'll close down in 60 days. They'll reopen a new limited PAC. Uh, and I bet that they, you know, are, are, you know, do it a little bit better this time. Not that any of this doesn't seem like that any of this is intentional. Senator Julia Kurt in Oklahoma City, she's actually got an interim study talking about how to make sure that lawmakers have the kind of training that they need to be able to comply with ethics rules. Um, and I think that that's really important. I think most most people in politics and most organizations in politics really do want to do it right. Uh, I think that the Ethics Commission re realizes that as well. And so, so much of this isn't about, well, we're going to just step into the fray and punish somebody. Uh, if it looks like somebody's trying to do it right and then they make a mistake, you end up in a situation like this where the Ethics Commission has a settlement with the organization and says, we're, we'll drop everything. You pay this amount and pay this amount and then cease business and then they walk away. But there'll be a new pact soon enough. And I think the other thing is, I mean, you talk to and listen to some of these folks that have been involved with PACs or you know, certainly have been involved with campaigns. I mean, there is the flip side of sometimes the frustration with those folks of feeling like the uh, the Ethics Commission or the Oklahoma Ethics Commission, or if they're in a federal campaign with the Federal Election Commission, where sometimes those, those rules uh, are not clear, or sometimes uh, they feel have been subject to interpretation by the commissions. Uh, in certain instances. So there is a give and take. And I think, as you said, Brian, that's how these settlements occur oftentimes is because it is negotiated. I mean, there isn't a just black and white slam dunk uh, 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 explanation uh, that uh, comes forward, but rather it's a case of all of these nuances and all of these interpretations and all and and uh, and sorting through all of that sometimes is very tedious and takes time. So, uh, but at the end of it, I think you're right. I mean, people don't go in. They're, the bad actors um, in, in any profession, any entity, any business, uh, in politics, you find uh, you know who those folks are, and they tend to be ferreted out, I mean, fairly quickly nowadays. And that's the upside to all of this discussion, I think, is that we have a process in place to curb bad behavior, and that's what everyone wants to see, I think. Results from the June primary show a steep decline in turnout compared to 2018. Less than a third of Republican voters cast their ballots for governor compared to 45% four years ago. In 2018, more than 395,000 Democrats and independents voted in the primary, but last month it was fewer than 168,000. Ryan, why was there such a decline? Well, I think it demonstrates how important uh, competitive gubernatorial races are for for the electorate in, in both parties. Uh, both the, the Republican and Democratic turnout was, was far less than it was. Uh, then you know, the 2018, whenever we saw the last gubernatorial election, you know, there you had uh, you know competitive election uh, on on uh, the Republican side, especially with with Governor Stitt ultimately prevailing in that. But it was it was a very competitive race. The interesting part to me is that 
the U.S. Senate primary uh, didn't seem to draw a lot of voters out. And I know that there's, you know, there's some, uh, some sense that in 2018 you had state question 788, the medical marijuana initiative, that that drove a lot of folks to the polls. But if you even go back in, in other gubernatorial election years when you didn't have some re- really big state question driving people to the polls, um, you still see, uh, you know, that's kind of this issue of a competitive primary. Does the competitive primary bring folks uh, to the polls? And it really is a competitive gubernatorial primary, it turns out, because uh, whenever you look at the U.S. Senate race, that was as competitive as it could get. Uh, and and we, we do have a runoff there. And it's a, it's a, a very, uh, you know, that was a hard fought battle for everybody to try to get into the runoff. I think everybody knew that Mullen was going to be there. So it was like, who's going to be number two? But that didn't really drive turnout the way that uh, an open gubernatorial seat did. Mm-hmm. You know, the other thing that I'll point out is, and a good friend of mine, uh, Andy Moore, and a friend of mine, David Glover, were having a conversation on Twitter about uh, turnout and and the way that primaries are selected. And Andy Moore had said that you know he he feels that unaffiliated independent voters are discriminated against because they don't choose a party to be affiliated with. And David Glover had responded to that, and he said he showed a number here. He said you know less than five percent of Oklahomans, because so many of these elections are decided in Republican primaries in the mm-hmm. state right now, that less than five percent of Oklahomans are actually deciding most elections. Um, and so if you, you know, you, you look at Oklahoma population of 4 million, over 18, 3 million, registered to vote 2.2 million, Republican voters 1.1 million, Republican primary voters 309,000. If you look at half of that, 179,000. Uh, so percentage of Oklahomans that decide most elections is 4.48%. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's whenever you've got half of the turnout in the Republican primary. So it, it is uh, an interesting facet of our system that, that we consider ourselves uh, to be a representative uh, democracy. Uh, but at the same time, so few individuals actually have the kind of power uh, to show up at the, uh, the polling place and decide who our elected representatives are. Neva. Well, uh, elections are about who shows up, and and this is uh, this is what we're talking about the numbers. I mean, when you look at it, Republicans in 2022, it was actually the second highest number of uh, votes cast uh, for governor in the last 20 years. Uh, you know, for Republicans, so we have historically uh, a problem that we've talked about for years on this show, and that is that uh, we have a lot of folks that engage in conversation about politics and campaigns and candidates, but they don't actually show up and express their vote uh, at the ballot box. And it, it is frustrating, certainly for those that are uh, spending millions of dollars. And I, I think it is fascinating, too, in looking at, at this primary season that just passed, $17 million in independent expenditures was were spent. And, you know, when you think about that, you have to wonder, I mean, was there so much money that these messages were being so saturated that they actually saw a diminishing uh, return on that, uh, you know, on that money being spent because it did not drive turnout as many uh, uh, expected. Some anticipated it. But but I think, again, intensity in elections is about what the voters are thinking, not what you're trying to tell the voters about X or Y candidate or uh, issue. It's about what they and their gut instinctively are thinking and how they react and respond to that and whether that galvanizes them to go to the polls. We know that there's a segment of Oklahomans who are going to vote in elections. Whatever that election is, they're going to show up. 
what we have are very disengaged, disenfranchised uh, Oklahomans who are registered but just don't uh, don't have uh, any motivation oftentimes to go to the polls. And that's a frustration that I think we are um, that we are seeing across the country. I mean, we, you're right, Ryan. I mean, it, it is a it is a big conversation when we think about um, what what does it take uh, in the minds of a voter uh, to uh, make them uh, engaged enough to go to the polls on election day or go in early vote or absentee vote or all of the mechanisms in place to allow them to express their their views and 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 give their votes and we just we're seeing we're seeing this continuing um, kind of sta- it's really kind of a stable place where we are it's not a great place when you talk about a third of the voters uh, mm-hmm. and sometimes you get that up into the 40% or in the high 40s or you know you cross the 50% threshold that's nothing to write home about as far as great numbers of voter participation yeah. but i think it does it does speak to the season that we're in and the fact that your point about the Senate race and the fact that when you have that many candidates in a race, you really, I think, saw some suppression in the voting because people went and in some instances voted for some candidates on the ballot, but left other others blank, as they often do, uh, because they didn't have a clear decision on who they wanted to vote for. So bottom line is, on August 23rd, do we see Half of the folks that came out in the primary come mm. out in the runoff, or do we see an uptick? And and that's always the the big question. I mean, it's not impossible to see actual voter turnout in a runoff go up. It's not, you know, most people don't view that as likely, but it could happen if you see voters now kind of seeing the field set, seeing the runoffs that are left, and having a very form, very strong opinion in some of those races. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if there aren't Republican voters out there that looking at the U.S. Senate campaign right now, okay, now I can engage in this. Uh, you know, the, the second district congressional campaign, now I can engage in this. I, I, you know, I don't have to, you know, you know, parse out from, uh, uh, you know, just this, this, you know, this packed uh, phone booth full of candidates that, that are coming out and you're like, well, when is this going to end? Uh, <laughs> but, you know, now we're, now we're down to two. And, you know, may, and maybe this is one of those instances where we do see an uptick in runoff turnout because of uh, the the fact that voters can really make a decision. If you're if you're choosing between Coke and Pepsi, it's easy. But you, know, you get to those fountain drinks, and there's there's just so many selections. You know, the machines at the movie theater where you it's a digital thing. I don't know what to do. Tell well, how I all, feel about cereal. Yeah. And the other thing, <laughs> the other thing about the primary. Let's remember. I mean, if you, if we want to talk about numbers, I mean, Republicans in the primary had about three hundred sixty thousand folks turn out. Democrats had about 168,000. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that again sets the stage for what we're going to see in November in terms of uh, in, in terms of not only registration, Republicans now being on top, but the fact that we are seeing a much uh, a much more interested electorate among Republican voters, I think, than we're seeing in Democrat or Independent voters at least at this point. And do Democratic and Independent voters that didn't feel that it was necessary to show up on on issues like choice, uh, you know. When, when we see there seems to be a, a real uh, energized Democratic base right now around, you know, after, after Roe was overturned uh, in the, by the United States Supreme Court, that the, and, and we've returned uh, abortion issues to the state legislatures, um, that's, that has energized a lot of Democrats. Did they look at the Joy Hoffmeister, Connie Johnson race and say, well, either one of them are going to be fine on this, but whenever you've got a more stark comparison on something like that between uh, uh, Joy Hoffmeister and Kevin Stitt, 
does that you know then say all right well the democrats you know feel like they've got a reason to show up instead of just like picking between a couple of candidates that they you know at the end of the day they're they're both probably going to be in the same place Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.